Welcome to Life on Less Meds, a podcast that reveals the truth about drug side effects and the best strategies to manage them. And now your host, Dr. Yosef Wittering. Hi, I'm Dr. Yosef Wittering. It is my pleasure to be joined by uh, Adele again today. Um, uh, we've done an interview, you know, a, a few days ago on this, but um, if you're just joining, Adele is the founder of Surviving Antidepressants, pretty, you know, the largest forum for people who are dealing with problems with uh, antidepressant withdrawal and such. And she's been at this for a really long time. She's got a wealth of information. And the topic of today's meeting is, is really going to talk about the growing recognition of um, uh, protracted withdrawal from antidepressants. Um, and to sort of set the stage, you know, there, there's a lot of adverse reactions out there that I see that have have gained mainstream recognition. I'm thinking about, you know, uh, protracted withdrawal with the benzodiazepines, which are now mandated into all of the labeling in the U.S. for benzodiazepines. And that's a big deal. You know, I've been involved in lawsuits where the actually the damages have hinged on the inclusion of that being in there. Um, and then also, you know, you have things like PSSD where, uh, that has at least gained mainstream recognition in the EU and then also in Canada and you know, also in Hong Kong. And so there's these growing areas. However, protracted withdrawal from antidepressants, to my knowledge, has not been listed in labeling. Um, although it hasn't been mentioned to my knowledge, and I may be wrong about this, and actually uh, labeling from uh, regulatory authorities, it started to pop up a lot more in the UK, at least in official kind of documentation from Royal College of Psychiatrists and things like that. So um, I guess that's my question uh, to, to you, Adele, is um, can you update us on the state of recognition of protracted withdrawal from antidepressants from, from what you see from your perspective? Sure. Uh, okay, so back in 2005 when i was when i started poking around in the literature um even though there was already a body of uh of uh knowledge that had been published probably you know a couple hundred articles about antidepressant withdrawal syndrome it actually was not very well known and that was in 2005 so in 2005, um, doctors were denying that it existed, basically. They, they just could not believe that it existed at all. So that's what patients were getting from their doctors was, no, antidepressants do not cause withdrawal symptoms, or as euphemistically, they were called discontinuation syndrome symptoms. Um, because antidepressants aren't addictive. So there's there's that confusion of, of that only addictive drugs can cause withdrawal first, um, which actually persists to this day. But but uh, so there was an abs a fairly absolute denial that anti-withdrawal existed. And uh, so so you know psychiatrists at that time on blogs or you know, in, in discussions, we're saying, I'm skeptical that this even exists. You know, what we're seeing is, you know, psychosomatic or conversion or, or you know, patients imagining their symptoms, that sort of thing. So, so that was in 2005. And then gradually, uh, withdrawal, it's antidepressant withdrawal itself became known. And now it's 
pretty much of a known thing, although still doctors believe that it's going to last only a few weeks. So so they're telling people that still that it's mild and it'll last only a few weeks. Um, and, can, I ask, you know, can I interrupt you there on that? Why do they think it only lasts a few weeks? You know, when you've seen the literature or talked to people, you know, wh where does that idea come from? Well, it comes from uh, mostly it comes, well, when when the new generation antidepressants were released on the market, starting, I guess, a, you know, the, 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 the marketing really started in the 90s, but they were released uh, in the 80s. So, so, but when the marketing really got going in the 90s, um, the, the doctors were educated that, that, that withdrawal problems were trivial and the, and the, um, and also that they were not addictive. And this was the message that was ingrained in all of the, um, all the training they got in medical school, all the training they got in specialty training, that it just was not a big problem. Uh, and, um, the, so, so, but in the uh, early two, 2000s, um, pharma started recognizing that withdrawal was popping up in their, uh, even in their clinical trials. Patients started complaining about it. And so they, uh, they actually sponsored a couple of symposia uh, that of, invited, and then they invited elite psychiatrists one was, I believe, it was in 1998, and it was sponsored by uh, Lilly, uh, and which at that time was manufacturing Prozac, the new drug on the market. And um, this uh, symposium um, of the, you know, very uh, authoritative, probably you know, a dozen or twenty authoritative figures uh, met over a weekend. And eventually produced a paper that was uh, made into a supplement in the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. And the lead author is Schatzberg. And in that paper, which was produced as an authoritative guide to antidepressant discontinuation syndrome, uh, they stated that authoritatively that withdrawal uh, is usually mild and lasts only a few weeks. Um, so, uh, and then that was repeated um, in 2006, uh, this time Wyeth, which was manufacturing an Effexor, uh, wanted to take it to market, uh, wanted to defend Effexor from accusations of withdrawal symptoms. And so they sponsored a similar symposium uh, with many of the same players, also led by Schatzberg. And uh, so they published another paper or set of papers, again, very authoritative, a section of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. Um, these supplements, by the way, are paid for. So, so the, you know, Wyeth insured, this was a publication, also guided the publication. Uh, and uh, again, this, uh, they iterated, these the experts iterated that withdrawal was mild and lasted only a few weeks. So, so, so these papers were, you know, and again, there's it's, each of these were a set of papers that looked really sciencey, 
And so they, uh, this is what they could take to the, to doctors and um, show them, you know, that it's not a problem. And the, um, and this, and you'll see that this, you know, these papers are cited, very widely cited. And of course they've been incorporated in medical textbooks and in all kinds of training materials. They're more or less the authoritative source for antidepressant withdrawal, or they are a source. Uh, it, you know, later on, the problem of conflict of interest became important, and um, and I think that the importance, the the, the centrality of these papers uh, became uh, somewhat downgraded because um, they were sponsored by two pharmaceutical companies. So so so, and everybody was paid by the pharmaceutical companies who who authored the you know the the. Um, who contributed to to these uh, these these publications? So so the um, so the the pharmaceutical companies seeded the literature with uh, assurances that withdrawal lasted only a few weeks and was uh, mild, and the symptoms were mild and tolerable. And they also advocated stuff like management. You know, you could manage it with benzo benzodiazepines. And I think you know what the results of that are, that people became dependent on the benzodiazepines and they had withdrawal problems from that. So, so, um, so that, so, so that yeah, I think that this, this is an aspect of pharmaceutical company influence on the uh, development and the um, distribution uh, and clinical practice when it comes to antidepressants. Um, so the, the, um, yeah, so so that's the that's the state of antidepressant uh, uh, withdrawal as far as you'll see in the medical textbooks. A lot of the medical the medical textbooks have not have not been updated with any other information. Um, anyway, so uh, it, from my reading, because I I looked at everything I could find on antidepressant withdrawal going back to the Oh, 70s and 80s having to do with TCA withdrawal and MAOI withdrawal. Um, the the uh, initial phase of withdrawal is the acute symptom phase where people have the most um, dramatic types of symptoms, vomiting, um, um, fainting, uh, you know, disorientation, dizziness. And uh, that, in fact, does go away in some number of weeks. That, but that's only the acute phase. And um, what follows that is what's called the protracted phase. So technically, since antidepressant withdrawal lasts only is supposed to last only a few weeks, any symptoms that go beyond a few weeks are protracted withdrawal. Uh, but the uh, you know the, the character of acute uh, withdrawal symptoms is is a bit different from the protracted withdrawal symptoms, but either really can be extremely disruptive and disabling to somebody who's experiencing them. Um, so that's a bit of the history, and the so, so and I would say that now there's understanding that withdrawal exists and that it can be a problem. Um, but 
the this idea that it really only lasts a few weeks is extremely stubborn. And for at least in, let's say, from about 2005 until fairly recently, anybody who had withdrawal symptoms past a few weeks was called relapsed. And this, you know, this, this, is, this gets really complicated because these people also um, showed up in uh, antidepressant efficacy trials. So uh, the, the existence of withdrawal symptoms has actually confounded the results of antidepressant efficacy trials um, because the people who got withdrawal symptoms were called relapsed and that supposedly indicated that what they really needed to uh, forestall relapse was the antidepressants. Um, that I, it, it is this this is a complicated idea so uh, do you want to go into this no no i i think it's i think it's um i think it's a it's a good point that's you know that's that's well uh you know well well taken that these withdrawal symptoms um have influenced the idea of antidepressant maintenance therapy because you have, you know, what they do in these pharmaceutical studies, you know, you'll have a placebo arm and a drug arm. And then at the end of the study, all the people who responded on the drug arm, you know, they've been off for two months or something like that, sometimes longer. They then get randomized again to either be on the drug or to be off the drug. And, um, and that's what they use to justify giving these medications to people for a few years. You know, they say, well, as you can see, you know, we then randomize people and look how poorly the people are doing in the placebo arm, you know, and, you know, not just in the first couple of weeks, but as you can see, you know, afterwards, they're still doing poorly. So, you know, mm -hmm. these, these drugs are preventing depression. And, right. um, and so, I mean, that's, I mean, that, that, that is the heart of, of why there's this big scientific justification for maintenance therapy. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I think it's really important to understand that. Um, and there's, ah, it's, that's still a really hard realization for psychiatry. There are papers that have been published in the last couple of years that misinterpreted that very point that they, you know, they, they mistook the um, withdrawal of, uh, for relapse. And, uh, and also, I think we need to also point out that in these trials, when there was, uh, so people had been on the antidepressant regularly for some months, couple of months, none of them lasted for very long, none of them were very long. But although I, uh, Lewis, Lewis had, um, was long, uh, long term uh, antidepressant use. Uh, and that's uh, Lewis came out in 2022. Um, so, uh, but they were, when they came off the drugs, it was very abrupt. Uh, so, so the tapering schedules were always really, really short, if, if not absolutely cold turkey, you know, they just, you know, give them, you know, they'd be on, people would be on the drug and the next day they'd be taking a placebo and they didn't know it. And um, then um, they'd experience withdrawal symptoms and probably, probably some of those symptoms were pretty, pretty extreme because they're, they experience a sudden substitution of a, of a, you know, a capsule that didn't have anything in it uh, for the drug. So that's that's a cold turkey. Um, so that yeah. So even those symptoms were 
mistaken for relapse. And um, and uh, although um, we have had some studies fairly recently that uh, went back and looked at the old discontinuation studies and found evidence of withdrawal, and um, that would be Davis and Reed in um, 2019, and uh, and a couple of others. So there's been some recalculation of the raw uh, data from those discontinuation trials, and it's pretty controversial uh, because uh, psychiatry really is predicated on this idea that what happens when you go off your drug, off your antidepressant is relapse, and you know withdrawal is just not a factor. Whereas according to uh, Davies and Reed. It's it runs about fifty percent, which seems about right to me. I think about half of the people who go off their drugs fairly quickly or will get withdrawal. Mm-hmm. So, 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 so there's. I would say that since again two thousand five, which is what eighteen years now, that the there's we <laughs> doctors have slowly come to realize that people may get withdrawal symptoms if they go off their antidepressants too quickly. Uh, Do they know about protracted withdrawal? I think that the advance that we have with protracted withdrawal is that it's it's in the literature now. Whether it's been adopted in clinical practice is another story. I think from, from my website, I know people still have to argue with their doctors about it. And they're not getting anywhere. So the doctors are not very receptive to hearing about protracted withdrawal. Yeah, and and I guess this is really where um, I guess the the influence of pharmaceutical companies and and resourcing comes into it. Because you're right, you know there are articles out there by protracted withdrawal, and I think people like Giovanni Fava have been talking about it for probably nearly ten years now. Maybe it's been longer. You know, you've written an article that has been published in a in in a journal on your experience tapering people. But the truth is that rank and file family doctors, gynecologists, um, you know, psychiatrists, they're not really reading the articles. However, what drug companies are able to do is is very different. So one, they have the resourcing and the connections to get those articles published by, you know, Schatzberg, I think that's Yale, you know, Maurizio Fava, I think that's Harvard, you know, they, they can get true leaders in the field to author these papers, you know, mostly because a lot of the clinical trials are run at those sites. And so they've developed relationships with these folks. And so they'll put people together and develop a consensus paper. Um, and then, you know, they'll Get us some, you know, they'll get a slot at the American Psychiatric Association national meeting, you know, the most widely attended one for U.S. psychiatrists, and then several others around uh, around the world, and they'll and they'll put on these these campaigns. On top of that, you know, they can take these articles and they can head into doctors' offices and, you know, anticipating questions that you know physicians and family medicine doctors may have, like, you know, I had this patient who had really bad withdrawal the other day, you know. You know, is this a big problem for you guys? Reach into their briefcase, they pull out this article from, you know, Schatzberg, you know, published in the top ten journal, and just go, oh, here's Schatzberg and Father saying this is a, it's not a big deal. So you know, something else must be going on with your patient. And so, 
there's there's this there's there's a massive amount of um i mean and essentially it's pr you know you know we we the farmer has done a good job at distancing themselves from pr but there are dedicated divisions within companies called medical affairs which are supposed to anticipate the problems that clinicians you know the concerns clinicians have about the drugs mm-hmm. and then they mm-hmm. generate articles in the medical literature it's it's essentially it's pr you know and and it's a huge part yeah. of drug companies um yeah. and so y- you may have articles in the literature but do you have the um you know the 10 million dollars that it takes to to hire a team of you know 10 to 15 physicians and medical writers who are you know going out and liaising with people and writing articles and disseminating this information it's like no you know so it's 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 just how you know and that's why these these things get so ingrained because like you said they're in medical textbooks they're in residency education they're what you hear from your attendings while you're training I mean, it, it's, it's just so effectively um, uh, yeah, promulgated, you know, throughout the medical community. Well, I would say, uh, you know, pharma put a lot of money into this uh, when with the new antidepressants. The new antidepressants were an enormous gold mine for pharmaceutical companies. It, they, it, the, the amount of money that they made was enormous, huge. What they paid in fines is a drop in the bucket. They paid, I don't know, some billions in fines uh, for overselling their drugs. But but the uh, but you know, but the, they ran away with record profits, and that's it's one of the reasons why we have such gigantic pharmaceutical companies now because they they kind of got built by antidepressant income. Um, but uh, the the antidepressants were heavily promoted. Uh, from about, I would say, the l- very late 90s until the uh, mid-2000s, uh, um, pharma put m- a lot of money into it. And uh, doctors were flooded with with reps and, you know, and, and uh, invitations to dinners where the drugs were discussed and, you know, that sort of thing. Um, um, which and and it was very intensive. I it, they they would actually oh, if a GP was uh, doing a substantial amount of prescribing, they'd be visiting GPs as well as psychiatrists. They didn't just limit it to the specialty. So they were and they were at the different specialty conferences as well. For instance, you know, talking about prescribing antidepressants for very you know for menopause or PMS or whatever at gynecology conferences. Um, yeah, they did. They did everything they could to to sell those drugs. So, so it, it was they they put many many millions of dollars into the marketing, and um, we cannot, I, 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 we can't we can't exaggerate how how large an effort this was because the profits were enormous. So they 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 put more money into marketing than they did into research. So mm-hmm. the the. Uh, so yeah, so so this very much saturated the medical profession with the pharmaceutical companies' concepts around prescribing and drug effects, and you know, and whether or not adverse effects were important or not. You know, this this is what doctors know. So so anybody that got educated in medicine up until the mid. Um, uh, gee, I you know anybody who was practicing in into the mid two uh, thousands 
got a lot of information about how great antidepressants were. And um, as a matter of fact, also having to do with this idea of relapse, if you go off your drug, uh, in the 2006 uh, journal, Clinical Psychiatry um, Insert, uh, Richard Sheldon, who is a leading psychiatrist, stated right out that anything past uh, three weeks of withdrawal symptoms was relapsed. He, he stated that in one of the papers that was in that. It, it's just a very, very plain statement. So, so, um, uh, and, and I had personal co uh, correspondence with him about that time, at that very time, actually. And, uh, and he said that he knows, he knew that some people had much longer problems with withdrawal. So even if, right. Yeah. So, so, and that was at the very same time in 2006. So um, anyway, so there, as, there must've been, you know, I imagine that there must've been some kind of a discussion at the symposium, you know, should, should we just close this? Should we just close that? And they decided to err on the side of making the drugs look good. Mm -hmm. so, so um yeah uh i would say about about the i guess general recognition of withdrawal that and protracted withdrawal that what we see now is that the 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 pop mental health sites on the web uh generally will contain a statement having to do or actually first i'll have a paragraph about tapering and withdrawal, which is a big advance. And that's more recent. That's probably in the last few years, there'll, there'll be a paragraph saying, never go off your drug suddenly. It's best to taper over some number of weeks. But they'll always say, talk to your doctor about this. Um, and they may mention the problem of protracted withdrawal. So, and that, but that, that would be the pop, pop mental health sites, right? The pop health sites. So, so um, if you bring this up with, uh, you know, let's say uh, um, the medical community on Twitter, they'll get a, a tremendous amount of pushback and denial having to do with protective withdrawal. Well, so let me ask you a little bit about um, the recognition of protracted withdrawal by, I guess, you know, I, I know we've got some articles in there, but that you know the in the in the UK at least it seems like you know Royal College of Psychiatrists and some of their you know position papers have now started talking about protracted withdrawal injury. Um, is is this something that you see in other countries, or is this mainly a UK thing? You know, having I guess a governing authoritative group, you know, recognizing this in their official documents. Well, I think that the I, I think the UK is is has been a leader in this because um, they have a very active patient uh, advocacy community, and um, they it, it's it they they've been working really really hard, and uh, they had originally um, they there was a recognition of benzodiazepine problems uh, because of the work of Heather Ashton in the UK. So, so there's, I guess the, the ground, the groundwork was laid to inform the, um, um, the centralized health system 
in the UK about about these issues. And and I think that that's another thing that the that the way that the health system is set up um it's it's really more inclined to look for good outcomes. It 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 wants the the NHS and the uh, and and Nice, which is their uh, I guess you could say their um, clinical guidance body, um, carefully looks at what what evidence is available because it wants to uh, provide the best care at the lowest cost. So it's not a uh, it's not as in in the U.S. We don't have any such thing. So every every individual prescriber uh, follows their own star and they're, you know, if they, if they happen to be visited by a drug rep, then they're more easily persuaded than somebody else. So, so it's a, in the U S it's really um, uh, very much of a, I think a um, um, marketing driven, the clinical care marketing has a great, great deal of influence on clinical care in the US but it doesn't have in the UK because the in the UK doctors take their uh guidance from a centralized body that evaluates what you know evidence that's available and they're pretty strict about it you know they're they um they're not uh, you know they're not as susceptible to marketing hype as some so so but they have been very conservative in psychiatry and psychiatry itself is a very conservative uh, specialty, oddly enough, and the uh, uh, so so the 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 nice guidance has only recently changed to address issues of antidepressant withdrawal and uh, advise on tapering more slowly. Um, it's not it's not quite there with protected withdrawal, but there's some recognition that that protected withdrawal is a high risk. Now um, the um, the the psychiatrists uh professional body which is the royal college of psychiatrists um i guess you could say it's because it's a smaller country and it's also got the centralized medical system that it's a little bit it's more accessible than 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 professional than uh, psychiatry professional societies in the united states I mean, in the, if in the United States, you cannot phone somebody at the, uh, you know, uh, at the um, American Academy of Psychiatry, uh, but uh, at the, it, I think that the uh, Royal College is somewhat more responsive. And fortunately, a few years ago, um, a very good psychiatrist, Wendy Burns, was the um, president, and she was she's she was very patient centered. So she she listened to this and she, you know, she 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 had the college. She guided the college towards uh, producing patient-centered guidelines about tapering, which was a huge breakthrough because she was getting her information directly from the patients. And could you tell me how good are these um, uh, these the guidelines that they were able to generate? I know every time you go through these big governing bodies everyone kind of has a say you know don't do this it's too complicated it's going to confuse people you know it's making a bigger deal than it is because you know when we think about what what happens i guess what i do in my clinical practice and what you do it's um you know it, it it's it's 
it's pretty tricky. Uh, some of the times there's a lot of, um, you know, it, it, some parts of it can get technical. I, I won't say it's the hardest thing in the world and people can't learn. I really believe they can, but uh, what was the outcome, you know, of, of, I guess, Wendy Burns's project in, in generating these tapering guidelines? What, what do they look like and sound like? Well, uh, tapering, tapering advice has been so terrible. I always say that any amount of tapering is better than no tapering. Uh, but, um, I, I participated in some discussions uh, having to do with producing that pamphlet for the Royal College of Psychiatrists. And um, the the lack of range of of doses is a real problem. that's that that is a physical barrier to even imagining for for doctors to even imagine how to taper. because let's say you know they have three, let's say with Cetilopram, they have might have, uh, I think they have two dosage forms. Is that right? Ten milligrams and twenty milligrams. Is that is that right? I think it, I think they're only. The two. I think so. Yeah, I I, yeah. I I think so. I mean, another example is, I think, uh, Pristique, which comes in fifty, and that's it. <laughs> well, I think there's twenty five, but Pristique is a special Pristique is a special case, which I would. I'll get into in a second. Uh, but uh, yeah, so so if you're telling a patient to taper very slowly, it's like they can go from 20 to 10, and then where do they go? Right. Zero. I mean, what you know, right. Mean? That's yeah. What does slow mean when you have only two dose, two dose, dose levels. So, so you, so even what you would really want them to do, in my opinion, is to go down by, you know, by eighths of a tablet or something like that. But but uh, but it's really hard to cut up those pills. Now, fortunately, Cetilopram and most of the SSRIs um, come in liquid form in the United States. Um, so one could use those to taper. So and that and that's a good idea to use the liquid forms. But uh, in other countries, those liquid forms are much more restricted. And let's say in the UK, you have to make a special application to get the liquid form of the drug. So uh, doctors in the UK have a mental barrier against making that that uh, taking that additional step and ordering that liquid, which is more expensive than the tablet. And the NHS is very, very cost conscious. So they're very reluctant to do that. Uh, if they even know that a liquid is available, but you know, um, we give we we give people information about about uh, liquid availability, so so they know if they can ask their GP about it. Um, anyway, and you can look on the web for it. You can you can look up whether uh, your your uh, drug is available in liquid form on the web. You can do some searches. So so the so. It, just even imagining how people might gradually taper is a real problem for for most doctors because they don't you know they they don't want patients to be cutting up tablets it's it's it, you know they they've been they've been telling their patients not to mess with their drugs you know forever and uh and they don't you know, it, it, and and they don't trust the patients to do it properly, and you know things can happen, and they're worried about the contamination of the drug, and it, it's 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 a um, it's a conceptual barrier. So there's no range 
most of the most of the I, I can't even I can't think of any of them that come in in, re, in reasonable doses for tapering. Uh, so mostly you have to resort to a liquid and you can get compounding pharmacies to make liquids for most of them, but they're really expensive. Anyway, it gets to be quite complicated and um, sometimes not, not covered by insurance. So uh, patients have a problem with that. It can be, yeah, just the just the um, nuts and bolts of it can be uh, um, difficult. Now, when it comes to Fristique, Fristique initially was issued only in 50 milligrams. And the, I gather that the FDA asked um, uh, Wyeth, I think is the, is Wyeth the manufacturer? Yeah, it's an, it's an extension of Effexor. So it's a, mm -hmm. so, so the, yeah, it's a brand extension. So the, the, um, they asked Wyeth to make it in other in other dosage forms, and Wyeth went to a tremendous amount of trouble to avoid doing that. And um, there's um, some interesting documentation about that. And they also produced an incredibly dishonest study uh, showing that um, they called turkey people off of both 50 milligrams of Pristique and 25 milligrams of Pristique. And the study showed that the... Um, Withdrawal wasn't any uh, worse off either of the drugs, and that's what they are. That's how they argued with the FDA that they didn't have to produce the lower dose, which was twenty-five milligrams. They later did. They later did produce the twenty-five milligrams. I don't know what happened uh, to get them to do that. Maybe they wanted well, to. Was it, wasn't it like it was a long time afterwards? I feel like Pristique was a really long time. Yeah, it was, was like in two thousand and eight, and then the. I was just doing some Googling while you were talking and I saw a lot of things in like 2022. So maybe, maybe it was only like recently that they did. I don't that. know. You know, maybe why I was <laughs> thinking that it's going to prescribe Pristique to children or something. And, yeah. and Pristique also is yeah. a, you know, it's a, it's a unitary tablet. So, and it's very hard to split. So, and then yeah. when you cut it up, it loses its, um, its um, extended release capacity because that's incorporated in into the the tablet matrix so uh so then it becomes immediate release you know i mean that's the vaccine uh which you have to take twice a day uh and uh and it's very closely related to effexor or venlafaxine so swapping venlafaxine and is sometimes works for going off of prestige but that's yeah that's, we're getting into like some detail here. No, so, but I I I, I, I always think it's kind of yeah, it, like it's, it's an interesting point for people to 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 hear. It's that they will you know like Pristique, they will prescribe the drug at the effective dose with no way for you to taper until I guess public outrage you know says hey you need to manufacture you know and they you know a, a step down and they just give you one, but the fact that it was even allowed to go through. Um, the drug regulators without any, you know, smaller doses to, you know, a, a allow something like a gradual taper is it's, it's, it's a sign of just how poorly recognized the need for tapering was. Um, and it's, well, and it makes you feel like people are asleep at the wheel. I mean, why wouldn't you feel done. like that? Yeah. Well, please tell me what is going on at the FDA because the FDA wanted Wyeth to produce the 25 milligrams initially and Wyeth persuaded them that it wasn't necessary. And it, and it produced this, this incredibly stupid study. 
And it's just so transparently dishonest, not to mention the fact that they injured the patients in both arms by cold turkeying them off the drug. So, yeah. so why is it that the FDA said, oh, okay, no problem. You don't have to produce 25 milligrams. What, what, sure. what went on there? Yeah, well, to- yeah, let me give you my thoughts on that because um, okay. um, a lot of it has to do, you know, my my impression of it has, has to do with precedent. You know, a lot of it has to do with what the FDA has allowed companies to do beforehand. And, yeah. you know, FDA never really said, hey, we need you guys to have lower doses so people can gradually discontinue it. Most drug companies produce lower doses because it, it helps with the different, you know, there may be a, a therapeutic range, you know, Prozac may work at, you know, 20, 30 and 40 and 60. And so, you know, we're going to make tens and twenties, you know, you know, 10, 20, 40, something like that, maybe. And, and so there's like this, they do it in combination so people can hit different like efficacy thresholds, but the whole idea was never about helping people come off them. You know, that wasn't ever introduced. So I, I believe when Pristique came to the market, they tested 50 and they might've tested like hundred or 75 or something. And then they looked at the efficacy analyses and they found that the curves, they did not diverge. So 50 was just as good as, you know, the higher dose. And, and so FDA says, well, you're only going to get 50. And so it just became, you know, this one pill, but yeah, the whole the whole concept of allowing, you know, the approval of these drugs was, you know, the uh, the, the concept of uh, having lower doses to allow people to come off never was never in there. So uh, I imagine the company would have come back and said, "Why us? You know, you haven't made any of the other companies do this before, so this is unfair. You know, like why didn't you? You know, why are you making us develop this? So that's my." That's my overall sense of why that well, something like actually, that happens. Yeah, yeah, actually, I have a, an interview with uh, Philip Ninen, who was the VP of drug development for Pristique, and uh, where he says, we know that there's a withdrawal problem, but blah, blah. So so uh maybe we could we could share some info about this, but you know, yeah. but the I think we could we could do a Freedom of Information Act and get all the, the transcripts of the discussions or something from the FDA because at one point, and it's not necessarily because they wanted people to go to taper. Maybe they wanted another. Maybe they wanted the twenty five milligrams so people could step up so that they didn't have this you know like the startup symptoms at the higher dose. But um, but uh, yeah. So so Wyeth fought tooth and nail not to do this. Anyway, so yeah, so the drug companies do not want to make a range of um, of doses because it, it's it's expensive for them. They have to tool up, they have to have factories, they have to have workers, mm-hmm. they have they have to have packaging, they have to do this and that. So so they don't want to do that. And why should they? They nobody makes them do it. So why And I'm they? I'm imagining someone like an executive over there saying why would we make a 25 milligram pill, you know, if to help people come off? Can't you see this Schatzberg article? This is not a big deal. Withdrawal symptoms, they, you know, they go away in two to three weeks. Um, 
we're going to make a bigger deal out of this than it is. People are going to think our drug is worse. If we just introduce a drug, you know, something for step down, this is ridiculous. I mean, like I can, I can hear it, you know, that's, that's what the conversation sound like. Could be. Yeah. That could be. That could yeah. be. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. So, uh, yeah. So that's that very practical barrier is uh, the, the lack of range of doses is, is, uh, is, um, one of the reasons that uh, tapering is just, you know, doctors just don't want to go to the trouble. I, w- I want to come back to protracted withdrawal and, uh, and, um, and tapering where, you know, aside from the great stuff on, you know, surviving antidepressants, who is, what is the best, you know, the most, the, the best tapering guide, guide, guidelines that you've seen from an authoritative, more mainstream institution uh, to date. Well, uh, boy, institutions are not are not really producing good tapering guidelines. <laughs> I'm sorry to say, um, you, you know, probably the Royal College of Psychiatrists is the is the best one. Uh, other than that, um, there's a book by Joseph Glenn Mullen, um, which is uh, I think it was published in 2005, so it's not. It's a good book about tapering. It's not. Uh, it doesn't give very slow tapering schedules, but it's in the going in the right direction. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, so there's there's not a lot. Yeah, and and so the stuff that's in the that the Royal College of Psychiatrists came out with is that similar to what's in the Nice guidelines, or is the Royal College of Psychiatrists stuff better from your perspective? Well, the NICE has a lot of respect for the Royal College of Psychiatrists. So it, it's uh, one of their sources mm-hmm. for the NICE guidelines. And uh, let me think, I can't, uh, I can't recall exactly what the NICE guidelines say, but um, uh, I think that the, the Royal College of Psychiatrists guidelines have more detail about uh you know how, how to step down uh mm-hmm. i think the guidelines are more general if i remember if i recall correctly excellent okay um i think it's i mean i think and i'm you know i'm going to test your memory here uh do you do you recall what uh, Royal College of Psychiatrists say about protracted withdrawal from antidepressants? Do they, I mean, do they say, do, do you feel like they describe what it is in there or is it very like generic and, you know, sometimes withdrawal symptoms may last, you know, longer than a few months? Yeah. Yeah. It's the latter. Okay. Very well. Okay. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, and then I guess my next question for you is, What do you foresee in terms of further recognition of this? I mean, do you see, are there any movements? Or is anything going on at the moment that would get protracted withdrawal from antidepressants more widely recognized? Or is it kind of just who, who really knows? Well, protracted withdrawal also exists uh, from other psychotropics. And uh, addiction medicine 
uh, is very ambivalent about it, uh, although there's a body of of literature and addiction medicine discussing protracted withdrawal and the implications of protracted withdrawal. So, but a very, it's, it's held that getting the person off the drug is so important that, you know, that if they, if they have to recover for several years after that, then that's okay. So, so the uh, protected withdrawal is not a very, prominent concept in addiction medicine, although it's it's semi-recognized, though some old-fashioned addiction medicine specialists will say, no, 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 that's the person craving the drug. Anyway, it's 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 a it's also confounded by this concept of relapse, although in addiction medicine, relapse means that you you want to go back on the drug. <laughs> so 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 um so so it hasn't really risen to a level of recognition in addiction medicine for I know 40 years and um and it's just now coming across it for antidepressants. Uh so I you know as I said it, psychiatry is such a hidebound profession. It's just barely agreeing that perhaps the the drugs need to be tapered more slowly. <laughs> it's it's just it's just I don't know. It really doesn't want to admit it. So so if it's going to go further into into admitting that, oops, we made a terrible mistake, and now there are thousands of people suffering from protected withdrawal. I I kind of like think that there's going to be a lot of resistance to that, and um, and patients are going to have to make make it clear. Uh, because that's that's the argument for tapering is to avoid the worst possible scenario. So so the the and I think that one of the things that's remarkable about what's going on right now is that patients who have been taking antidepressants and got withdrawal and protective withdrawal and PSSD, which is uh, post SSRI sexual dysfunction that lasts after you go off the drug. They're making, you know, they're finding each other on social media and they're making some noise. And I think that that's different than anything else that's happened in medicine in the past. And uh, certainly uh, in terms of addiction medicine, you don't have a bunch of people who had, you know, gone through through detox banding together and complaining about their protracted withdrawal. They would just wouldn't do that. So so uh, you know they don't want to be recognized. First of all, they don't want to be recognized, and secondly, they might not even know that they have protracted withdrawal. Uh, but the um, but the people who are who had been taking antidepressants and gone off are, are a different demographic, and uh, a lot of them are very well educated, and some of them are well connected, and a lot of them are on social media. They're making YouTube videos. They're you know they're complaining to different bodies when they can they're writing books they're you know they're they're, they're uh they have something to say they and they're making their own uh they're making their own movement um which could pressure psychiatry i mean psychiatry isn't happy about that because it sees that there's some body of disaffected patients out there and and they get very upset because they don't want 
prospective patients to be influenced by this negative publicity. Yeah, the, I mean, there's there's an there's an element of intimidation out there when it comes to talking about the problems of these drugs, and you know, we 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 speak about you know when you talk about the Schatzberg articles, Shelter, you know, uh, Shelton, and things like that. Every time I've read one of these articles about it, you know, there's there's this emphasis, you know. Depression is a serious illness, you know, it's life threatening, you know, people can commit suicide, you know, this, and then, and they say these things like, you know, we shouldn't overemphasize this risk, it's going to dissuade people from really getting the care that they need, we shouldn't, you know, we shouldn't be pill shaming people. Um, and mm-hmm. so they, they kind of package the two ideas together that, that, you know, it's, it's actually dangerous you to talk about these things um you know and and you would be hurting people and so so they can really kind of shove those ideas in there and it just creates this i you know this general aura of like yeah if you make a big deal out of this you know you're you know you're going to hurt people and that's intimidation Uh, i mean that that's what that is you know because it's it's saying that the people who are harmed by these things are less important than the people who get get benefits, and that's yeah. and that's just not true. I mean, a scientist, you know, a health regulator, and a doctor should care about both people equally. You know, and that's when you see the drug in the true light. You know, yes, yeah, sure, some people are helped, that, yeah, but some people are yeah. harmed. Like, that's, and, and you, mm-hmm. yeah, that that's that was you know before I, you know, learned. <laughs> learned about withdrawal that's what i thought doctors that's what i thought doctors were about that they'd want to improve their practice they'd want to reduce injury they'd want to you know if something bad happened to somebody they'd want to make sure that their colleagues knew not to do that you know they, they'd want to uh to 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 get this information out there and in fact for many years they'd write they'd write up case uh case studies to to you know the clinicians would write up case studies to advise other doctors about uh, things that they had observed in their clinical practice that to, to improve, to improve clinical practice. So, you know, but psychiatry is very resistant to this. Um, and uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I, I, you know, I would like, I would very much like a sociologist, maybe somebody who's listening to this to, to look into why uh, psychiatry is so resistant to this idea of minimizing harm to you know, to minimize harm, they have to collect cases of harm and 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 look at them and and see what happened, and then make sure that you know if there are sy- systemic issues, which there are in in uh, antidepressant um, adverse effects and withdrawal problems, that um, that the entire profession be informed of this and and to to improve clinical care and improve improve outcomes and to improve patient well being. Um, but psychiatry uh, is very territorial about this, and it just does not want to be disturbed in its work. Um, now, this argument that patients will be dissuaded is a little weird because they're saying that on one hand, and on the other hand, they're also saying that their practices are overloaded. They can't fit any more people in. They, you know, we need to recruit more psychiatrists because of the demand. So the the it doesn't make any sense that they say that people are being discouraged and they're also battering down the doors because clearly there's a lot of demand. Um, they're, they're charging a lot of money uh, 
And uh, pe people are also getting, uh, you know, getting anti antidepressant uh, prescriptions from their GPs. The GPs in, in the UK, there was a study showing something like 40% of the GP's time is spent on mental health issues for the in the uk and this is and they're really strapped for for uh mm -hmm. medical resources there so so um nobody is being dissuaded by anything you know if if the if people could not be discouraged from taking antidepressants by knowing that they cause sexual dysfunction <laughs> they're not going to be discouraged by anything they, they want to take the drugs it's it's just you know i mean we we could we could be you know, we we could have millions to to uh, to 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 um, um, broadcast information about adverse effects, and it wouldn't make any difference. I have to say, I you know, at least I, I feel like I disagree with that because you know, some <laughs> one of the things that I'm trying to, you know, the the reason I like PSSD so much, but you know, I'm. I'm I'm kind of like a benzo guy, you know. That's that's where I came from. But I've been doing a lot of PSSD stuff lately. Is the side effect is so horrific um, yeah. that it's really become a focus to to just broadcast this as widely as possible. Because I don't see how someone could not, you know, think twice, especially if they were young. You know, hearing some of these stories and just go, yeah, no, thank you. I think I'll wait. So I I hope I'm I hope I'm right about that one. I'm I'm just kind of push this PSSD thing out there as aggressively as I can. Well, the, I, the, yeah. the PSSD people have been doing a good job of, uh, yeah. of, of getting their message out. And I, and I do think that it's important to, 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 for people to know um, now, but the sexual effects of antidepressants have been known for a long time. And, and I think mm. that that's actually why, you know, two thirds of those of, of those taking antidepressants are women rather than men. So men are considered to be an un, underserved community in psychiatry, and they, you know, and they get together and they try to figure out ways to convince men to take antidepressants. So, yeah. so, 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 you know, it, it, it's um, you know, their their rate their rate of taking antidepressants is disturbing because. They they don't seem to want them as you know they don't accept them as readily as women as women do, for I probably guess, the probably the sexual reasons right because I think it's probably the sexual reasons yeah. and I wish yes hello sociologists please write a paper about this um, yeah. so the the um, yeah so and 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 I so and I say rightly so because the the sexual side effects run to fifty percent but as I said you know there it's like just like the pharmaceutical companies made zillions of dollars on selling antidepressants, even though it was it was fairly it's fairly well known that they cause sexual dysfunction. Now, when people go off, PSSD is another story. Horrific, also horrific. Uh, it's a horrific effect from finasteride, which is well, I mean, it's 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 just. Uh, it's just tragic that that people fairly innocently start taking these drugs and then they find that their sexual functioning is permanently well or semi-permanently uh, affected now yeah, and a lot of those finasteride people have brain damage i mean when you when you talk to them i mean they they can't think straight i mean they're they're just clouded um it's it's devastating yeah 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 um yeah.
what what you know what, one one more question that I wanted to ask you about quickly and it's it's a tangent but it's something that I've been um really wanting to get your thoughts on ps sorry um post acute withdrawal can happen in in I mean I've heard cases of it happening really quickly you know of you know just someone's on the drug for a week or a month or something like that they come off and they have this 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 problem from your reading from talking to people what makes the most sense to you as a cause of why some people develop protracted withdrawal from antidepressants given that it can occur very quickly in some and for others you know they could be on the drug for a long time and then come off what i mean what makes sense to you as a unifying reason why this happens uh well, first, first, I want to say that one thing that I've observed, which is I, you know, like I, I claim it's one of our, um, our, uh, uh, it's something that we've discovered. It's a new discovery that from uh, survivorantidepressants.org is that some people get uh, fairly immediate adverse reactions when they take an antidepressant. And they, um, you know, they might take only one dose or, or a few doses or stay on for a week, or if their doctor persuades them to stay on longer, they might be on it for a few weeks and, and have horrible, horrible, severe adverse effects from the very start. Um, when these people go off the drug, even though they haven't been on the drug for long enough for theoretically adaptation neurological adaptation um they they get they exhibit what appears to be protracted withdrawal or their the symptoms are very similar to protracted withdrawal and the uh we really i don't think that we should really call it protracted withdrawal because i think it's more like a bad trip um there's a a, a little a little a little booklet written by a psychiatrist uh i think it was published in the early 2000s about his observations of uh people um taking one dose of lsd and having very similar syndromes afterwards so so they 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 come off of the they stop the antidepressant and then they have a um symptoms that seem very much like protracted withdrawal but i i don't think that we should call it withdrawal and um I have a small population of those people and I want to, to write this up. So, so um, I think it's important that uh, in, in pharmacology, an immediate severe bad reaction, such as we're describing is called tachyphylaxis, um, which uh, psychiatry, it's a term that psychiatry has borrowed, but um, distorted. So it means something else. Anyway, in, in pharmacology, an immediate bad reaction is recognized, and uh, it's um, thought to be probably a genetic uh, genetic intolerance to the drug. It's not a it's not like it's not an abnormality. It's just that the person's physiology doesn't get along with the drug. Now, on surviving antidepressants, we see that these people very slowly recover in exactly the same waves and window windows pattern as other people. Uh, with protracted withdrawal, but they seem to, uh, they the, their progress seems to be less choppy and they 
they uh, seem to recover faster, which is what you would expect from a, a drug injury, right? A short-term drug injury that's not as extensive as being on the drug for as long as it takes to get adapted, which is over a month. So so their, their, their recovery seems to be faster. So, so in, when we say that protracted withdrawal is gonna take about a, a few years, uh, these people might recover within a, a year or so. So then there's protracted withdrawal, which is a result of people having been on the drug for some period of time, and sometimes it's as short as a month. Um, and uh, their nervous systems and their body systems have become adapted to the presence of the drug. So then they go off the drug and then they have a period of acute withdrawal usually. And, the, um, and th those are those more dramatic symptoms uh, that uh, calm down over some number of weeks, a month and a half, but then there's more symptoms after that. There's a different pattern of symptoms. And that's one of the, the things about withdrawal syndrome in general is that the symptoms keep on mutating. So it keeps people very confused. And um, so, so, the, so the, the more uh, florid symptoms of acute withdrawal fade out and then other symptoms take over. It could, it could be continuing insomnia, could be this, uh, we were talking about um, this deadened feeling, this uh, uh, emotional anesthesia, which is, seems to be extremely prevalent. Um, and um, just, uh, you know, disorientation, inability to focus, a lot of depersonalization. Um, it could, could, sexual dysfunction could, could continue, uh, but we have seen people to, who, who do recover. Um, you know, it, it's like the, the, the symptoms are, can still be serious, but they're not quite as dramatic as with acute withdrawal. So we, there's a, you know, a catalog of, uh, mm -hmm. of protective withdrawal symptoms that are very similar. Um, usually, let's say something like nausea doesn't continue, although I have a few people in protective withdrawal that are, you know, still have problems with nausea for years. Wow. Well, that was a that was a, a great way to kind of think about it. And and I guess I want to say the pattern, I've seen this pattern kind of hold true for, for the benzo people, the same thing. Someone gets on a benzo, they have a bad reaction to it, they hate how it makes them feel, and they stop it and they develop what looks like protracted benzodiazepine withdrawal where they you know, feel like they're getting electrocuted and their skin is burning and they're cognitively disabled. The same thing happens with tardive dyskinesia as well. You know, Typically, that's a problem that, that emerges during withdrawal or dose change from the antipsychotic or after someone's been on it for years, but there's a lot of reports of people developing it after a dose you know, a dose or two of this medication where where it's it's kind of hard to say that there's really been, you know, prolonged receptor changes in, in the brain. You'd have to understand it as, as a kind of a direct toxicity that, that's occurred and it's just caused, caused injury in those people. So I think, I mean, that's one of the things that I find really interesting about these as well as how they, how they emerge over time. But yeah, I, I I, t I think your your answer there is, is is spot on and a really nice way to conceptualize it. Um, well, gosh, we you know I, we've we've gone about an hour again, which is great because I love talking to you. Um, but I think that's that would be a good time to to break for today. Uh, is there anything else that you wanted to share before we um, ended? No, no. I I uh, well, uh, one more thing. Okay, so we were talking about again, um, and and I. 
I think that we brought this up in the last time we talked, um, that that uh, paper by Lerner and Klein in 2019 that that uh, outlines commonalities uh, among all of the um, psychotropics as, in terms of uh, um, adaptation, dependence, and withdrawal. That's and, great. Uh, and I think that it's it's a really good overview of, uh, of it. I, in terms of theories of everything. Oh, I, we we're going to, yeah, you asked me a question, where is this going? I think that what I would like to see is that uh, medicine and everybody in general become much more realistic about psychotropics across the board. And that means uh, de you know, stop demonizing addictive drugs and also address the dependency issues with so-called therapeutic drugs. So mm -hmm. there shouldn't be this split. Um, and Joanna Moncrief has, uh, has a pr proposed the, what she calls the uh, drug-centered model where all of these drugs are held to be, you know, morally equal, and we just, you know, we just address the the the, the effects of psychotropics, which could be good or bad depending on how they're applied. Which is very classic medicine, right? Um, you know, the 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 uh, the uh, poison is in the dose. Right? The mm -hmm. so the the so so you know, we're saying that any psychotropic. Uh, could be used medically and and it's not intrinsically good or bad, but it has to be used in an intelligent way and we should stop mythologizing them because we've got mythology we've got mythology going on in addiction medicine and in psychiatry about the drugs and then you know in the addiction medicine they're like the drugs of the devil and then in in psychiatry, it's like they're the drugs of the angels, and it's they're neither. They're new. They're morally neutral, and they have similar qualities. And we should stop dividing them up as though it's like a good or good versus evil kind of thing. Thank you for listening to today's episode. If you want to see the full video interview, we also post these to YouTube. Just go to Wit During Psychiatry on YouTube to find those. You'll also find several YouTube exclusive videos from doctors Yosef and Marissa posted several times a week. Finally, if you need help with your drug taper, getting a second opinion, or managing your post-acute withdrawal, come visit us at witduringpsychiatry.com. Our sole focus is on helping patients regain control of their lives and achieve optimal mental health on as little medications as possible.